Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ngamihinui and welcome from Radio New Zealand National. Here's our changing world. When Māori first arrived in New Zealand, they brought with them some faithful camp followers, kuri or Māori dogs. Silawehi from Landcare Research is interested in why these kuri that were once so valued became extinct during the 19th century. And she's hoping kuri skins, cloaks and bones will shed some light on the mystery. I join Silla and curator Makoto Eria at Otago Museum to find out more. I'm really exploring the relationships between humans and the introduced species that came on waka with Māori. So these are species that, although they're introduced, have particular significance. The reason we're here in the textiles room at the back of Otago Museum is because there are some really beautiful items of clothing that have been made with kuri here. And by kuri, I mean um, here from the dogs that came with Māori on the waka when Māori arrived here in Aotearoa. So we're looking at the hair and the skin that's been incorporated into these cloaks and also separate dog skins that have been donated to the museum. They've been found perhaps in caves or shelters in central Otago. They're really well-preserved dog skins from the 19th century that we think are also kuri, are also uh, Māori dogs. And the reason we're interested in the hair in particular is that sometimes there are little detached hairs that fall from either the cloaks or the skins. And if we find some of these hairs that have already fallen off, we can sample them. And in sampling them, we can um, look at the stable isotopes within the hair and from that we can work out whether those dogs were well fed, we can get a sense of what they're eating, and that tells us about the life of the dog and also something about the relationship that they had with people at that time. So we've got about four, maybe five pieces in front of us um, that have been found, and um, seeing them intact like this is um, quite, quite different. So most of the time I've seen them cut into strips or attached to cloaks, but not the state that it's found here. Yeah, in different colours too, because I've mostly seen them white. Whereas we've got some quite dark brown. Here's one that's spotted. This um, skin here on the left is both a creamy colour, but it's also got these very dark brown patches. And one of the interesting things is if you go back to the kahukuri, the, the cloaks, is that often um, it's the white or the creamy strips of hair and skin that are incorporated into the cloaks. But here you can see this is um, quite a different pelt. And the pelt over here on the right is a very dark brown again, so quite quite different. And the kuri, they were really treasured? Yep, they were. They're marvellous animals, really. You can think of them as many dog owners would today. They're a companion. They're a protector if you're exploring new lands. They're a super sensor. They have an amazing sense of smell. They can detect things that you can't detect. You can use a kuri to help you find food, for example, or perhaps to hunt. But also, if times are desperate, or perhaps if there's a special occasion, you might also use kuri for food. And there's a tradition of eating kuri that um, goes right through Polynesia as well. A term that we use back home is the word tōpuni, and 
The tall puni or the dogskin cloaks were mainly and only worn and seen by chiefs and we have have them embedded in our um, ancient traditional chants where um, we want the next generation to adorn themselves with the chiefly cloaks or the, the dogskin cloaks of their of their fathers or their, um, their grandfathers so that they become the leaders of tomorrow. If you're wearing a kahukuri then you're re a really important person and even to be in contact with and seeing one I think is quite special as well. So one of the cool things really that um, I'm trying to understand better in my project is how would an animal that's so treasured and so loved, how would that disappear? And so we're interested in tracing that arc of social and ecological change through time. And uh, when we look at the hair from these cloaks or these particular animals, that tells us a lot about their diet and the relationship that they had with people later on, so late 18th and early 19th century. But to go much earlier, that's why we need to look at kuri bones, because that speaks to us about the earlier times. What kind of a dog was it? What, what size was it? Do we know? Short and squat and strong. <laughs> yes. We do have a taxidermy um, suspected kuri um, in our collection. He's rather unusually long, but that's not unexpected with the taxidermy <laughs> item. But he's also quite yellow, um, which we find quite unusual too. He's not white, he's not brown, he's yellow. There's the one at Te Papa that's quite famous. He's quite white, eh? Yeah, they're very strong do dogs. They had very big jaws, very... Um yeah, you Pointed can, ears. Yeah, yeah, little pricked up ears. Yeah. And of course, very bushy tails. So the tails were where, where a lot of the best, very long hair grew on the tail. So a tail might be shaved, for example, by somebody to get the hair. And when did they become extinct? Well, that's a really interesting question. So kuri are not a separate species from European dogs. They're what we might think of as a breed. So they were very morphologically different, but they could interbreed with European dogs. So what many people suspect, including me, is that they probably ended up interbreeding with the new dogs brought by the European settlers. Having said that, we don't have any hard evidence that that occurred, but that's the sort of obvious hypothesis that you might start with. But the other thing too, and I think the reason that it's so important to look at ecology within a social context is that what we know is that when Europeans arrived that there was a huge interest in pastoralism and farming and so clearly dogs that looked as though they were feral or not well under control were not desirable. And so there were a lot of farmers who um, killed dogs during the 19th century and it's highly likely that at least some of those were kuri or the mixed European Māori dogs. So I think that when we think about why did Māori dogs disappeared, we have to place that within this sort of huge social transformation that was occurring in the 19th century. Remembering as well that Māori society was under really severe pressure at that time. It was a hugely difficult time. So you've got a lot of disease that people are dealing with, um, a whole new economy, the effects of colonisation, land loss, so enormous issues that are arising at that time. So the story of Kuri, I think, really has to be placed within that context. One of the really interesting things, I think, about a lot of the late 19th century um, skins is that by that time colonisation was well underway 
and so for example these particular dogs might might have been um, wild what would call wild at that at that time so perhaps hunting for themselves they may not have been associated with a particular person and so the hair from these skins will tell us something quite different perhaps than hair that comes from dogs where we know they were very closely associated with people living in villages. When we look at the ratio of, st of light and heavy stable isotopes and different elements that make up the cloak, so, when, so we're looking at carbon and nitrogen and the ratios of light and heavy ratios within carbon and nitrogen and also um, using hydrogen or oxygen as well. Sometimes that gives us an idea of where that cloak was made because the oxygen and hydrogen that make up water, the water signature varies as you move up and down the country, so with latitude and also with altitude. So we can get some ideas then about potential provenance of different taonga. So what we're trying to do is give back a little bit of the story. So um, with time, hopefully, and perhaps other sources of information, it becomes clearer um, to the museum and to the curators where that taonga might belong. The amount of kaukuri throughout the country at museums is very, very minimal. At my last job in Hawke's Bay we had two, two kahukuri. I'm not sure how many Te Papa have. Definitely a good handful. Mm. So the kahukuri at Te Papa, you've done some analysis on some of those? Yep, and one of the really interesting things that we've found to date is that if you look at the historical 19th century accounts of kuri and uh, what they eat and how they behave, it gives you a particular picture. So, for example, Colenso talked about kuri um, eating fish, for example. But when we analysed the hair, the diet of those kuri was far more varied than, than what you might imagine from just reading those accounts. There were dogs that were eating at quite different trophic levels, so some that, in other words, were eating a lot more protein than others. So some very well-fed dogs, as you might imagine if they were the pets of chiefs, for example, we might think very well-loved. And then there were other dogs that had much lower protein. So when we compared them to modern dogs who were on vegan diets or vegetarian diets, they looked actually much more similar. So it suggested to us that they were eating a lot more vegetables in their diet or vegetable-type foods. So they certainly didn't fit the mould of what Colenso was saying. There was a huge variation in um, the amount of protein that they were eating. But yeah, very interesting because we had this huge variation. We could say some of those dogs look very much as though they're inland dogs, that they would come from inland tribes, whereas some of them in, in probability um, are living much closer to the coast. And we know that because um, marine animals like fish have got a particular signature, if you like, that speaks through stable isotopes. So yeah, we're starting to differentiate between the inland dogs and the coastal dogs and between dogs that are very well fed and dogs that really look as though they're having to forage a bit more on a range of foods. So you haven't done any analysis of these skins yet? With these ones what we're doing first and what we're doing at the moment is looking at the structure of the hair under the microscope. So one of the things we're really interested in is whether could he have a different hair structure from the later European dogs because if we can see differences in the structure of the hair then we might also be able to see whether 
there were European dogs whose hair is incorporated into some of the later taonga. And that would be really interesting to see whether that happened or whether really um, all of the taonga that, that we're looking at actually are kuri Māori. Yeah. Now, Sally, you mentioned that you're also going to be using bones to try and look a we bit are. further back in time. Can we go and find out a bit more about that? Oh, absolutely. So I think what we'll do is we'll go and hit the archaeology lab over at the University of Otago Yeah, and have a look at these early bones. So they're late 14th century and early 15th century bones. This is exciting because this gives us the window on the earlier period to see how things were different from the later period. So that's what we're interested in, that lovely arc through time and how things have changed. We've got some kuri bones that have come from middens from three different sites. The Purakanui bones are early 15th century, so 1400 to 1450. The Shag Rivermouth bones are probably about 50 years earlier, so they're, they're 14th century sort of 1300 to 1400 AD. So what we've got is a a slightly different set of bones and dates from each site, and and that's interesting because there are different things happening at each site that may relate to change over time. So at Shag Rivermouth, we have a site where people are quite clearly consuming moa and seals. At Purakonui, in the early... 15th century, we do have moa, but in very small quantities compared to the ratio of moa at Shag River Mouth, and most of the moa is what archaeologists refer to as industrial bone, so it's bone that's being used for artefact manufacture. Um, there's very little evidence of actual subsistence moa bone from Purakonui. So the interesting question here is in relation to um, kuri bone and isotopes and diet ultimately, um, do we have evidence consistent with that change that would suggest that at Shag Rivermouth, 50 years or so earlier, people were feeding uh, relatively plentiful moa to the dogs, and do we, can we contrast that with Pūtakanui where we would expect from what we're seeing in the middens that moa were relatively scarce and therefore dogs are eating other, other foods? The other really cool thing about the bones here is that with a lot of the, the long bones we can tell whether they're adults or juveniles. And so again that gives us this really exciting opportunity to see whether they might be feeding on different things. We've got quite a few there to to work on. Yeah, what we want to do is sample different individuals and so we're trying to consistently use the same bone um, from each animal, so a left tibia for example, so that we're not sampling the same individual over and over and we know that our results um, when we get them are independent and, and representative of different dogs. So you can imagine that this takes quite a lot of expertise to identify the bones themselves and um, where they come from. You can see quite clearly, I mean this is the tibia bone, and you can see um, that these are quite diagnostic, easily identified. From the, from the hair to papa, what we're seeing is this very broad range of diet for those kuri, and some of them look as though they're eating a lot more vegetable matter. One of the really cool things here is that we have bones from these two sites, Shag River Mouth and Purakonui, but also another one which is also coastal. 
but where we might expect a much more agricultural kind of community and environments. And the, and the agricultural sites are from the northern South Island, because down here uh, in the south, um, Pūrāko Nui and Shag River Mouth are thought to have been too far south for successful sweet potato production. So the really interesting thing will be to see whether dogs follow the diet of their owners and similarly have a more agricultural vegetable-based diet or whether they follow a more protein-based coastal, perhaps fish-eating pattern, which is what we would expect to find at Pūrāko Nui. So there's some really interesting questions that we can hopefully answer by comparing the data from the different sites. Yeah, so it's all about looking at the different sites and seeing how they stack up together. And it's the same with the hair and the bones. One piece of data in, in isolation is um, less informative than being able to look across a whole spectrum. So that's where we start to think about how do things change through time. It's through looking at that whole range of data from all of the different sites. That's what's actually going to give us a sense of, of what's going on. That was ecologist Silawehi from Landcare Research. You also heard University of Otago anthropologist Ian Barber and Otago Museum curator Magoto Eria. That's all for now. For more, check us out on the web, radionz.co.nz forward slash Our Changing World. Kakite anō.